by using the breath as an anchor, we can return to what is true, which is, what are you doing now? Just do it, right? And so when you're doing something, just do it means seeing time, see, hearing time, hear, smelling time, smell, and etc. And so by doing this, you're, I like to say, climbing into reality. You're climbing into what is true in this moment. And then when we do that, we connect to the universe as it is. And this non-existent future, this non-existent past, this non-existent I, my, me falls away. And this is what we want, right? This is God, this is Buddha, this is the absolute, this is holy, this is soul. Zen Master Bonyon, Jane Dobish, began to get interested in Buddhism in college, which led her to studying abroad in Nepal during her senior year. After graduation, she moved to Los Angeles to get a master's in Tibetan studies, but also began practicing Vipassana with Jack Kornfield and Joseph Goldstein. After several shorter retreats, she sat her first 90-day retreat at the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts when she was 23, and she enjoyed it so much she stayed for a second three-month sit. Zen Master Bonyon first heard Zen Master Sungsan when he came to teach at Barrie, instantly connected with him as her teacher, and moved to the Providence Zen Center. Not long after, she sat another 90-day retreat, followed by a 100-day solo retreat in Western Massachusetts. She moved into the Cambridge Zen Center at age 25, where she lived for the next 14 years. Zen Master Bonyon received Inca, or permission to teach, at 31, and began traveling and teaching in the United States, Europe, and South Africa. She received transmission in April of 2000 at the age of 39 and published The Wisdom of Solitude, an account of her 100-day solar retreat the following year. Zen Master Bonyan lives in the greater Boston area with her husband and two children and continues as the guiding teacher of the Cambridge Zen Center. You are listening to Sit, Breathe, Bow, a podcast for practitioners. Each week, leading Buddhist teachers share life experiences and insights to help guide your meditation practice, as well as your life off of the cushion. I am your host, Ian White-Marr. This podcast is sponsored by the Quanam Online Sangha, a virtual Zen practice community of the International Quanam School of Zen. Members of the Online Sangha meditate together, study with teachers, and participate in workshops and courses to develop their practice. To find out more, visit quanamzen.com online.org and click the free trial offer for a free month of membership. Jane, it's great to have you here. We're sitting in the Cambridge Zen Center to record this interview. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Ian. And I'm wondering if we can start with what I consider a really key component of your teaching, which is what are we doing right now? And I'm wondering where that came to be, like Zen in everyday life. When I think about how you're you're guiding students, it's really, for me, and maybe you can correct me, a lot of it comes down to, like, what are you doing right now? And and how does the practice lead us up into that, into that moment? 
That's a great question. Um, I think it comes from realizing how much of the time we are not present. And this is really the substance of our practice that most of the time, and I say this over and over again, we're creating a non-existent future. We're creating a non-existent past, right? And how do we do that? Because we really believe in space and time and we attach to it, right? And so we're thinking of everything from this point of view of I, and then there's this linear uh, subject-object time continuation. So we spend most of our time caught up in what I like to call hallucination, where we're dreaming about tomorrow, blah, 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 or yesterday, blah, 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 blah. And we're never really in the moment that we're in. On top of that now, with the different sorts of social media and everything else we have, we're layering over the scrolling and the, and the watching, you know, of other people's lives and other people's dreams. So practicing, you know, brings us back. We start with the breath as an anchor and it's a way of returning to what is true because what is true is that we create the future as a thought in the present moment. We create the past as a thought in the present moment and we create I am as a thought. So we're in practicing, we want to go one whole layer or it's not even a layer, but we want to go deeper below this hallucinogenic um, overlay that we put onto reality. And by using the breath as an anchor, we can return to what is true, which is what are you doing now? Just do it, right? And so when you're doing something, just do it means seeing time, see, hearing time, hear, smelling time, smell, and etc. And so by doing this, you're, I like to say, climbing into reality, you're climbing into what is true in this moment. And then when we do that, we connect to the universe as it is. And this non-existent future, this non-existent past, this non-existent I, my, me falls away. And this is what we want, right? This is God. This is Buddha. This is the absolute. This is holy. This is soul. You know, Desansanim used to say many names for this thing that we want. This is our human condition. We've been looking for it since we've been around. We want to touch that. We want to taste that. It has all of those names, and those names are just names. But the thing itself is before name and form. And so when we just breathe in, breathe out, you know, your podcast is called Sit, Breathe, Bow, right? So when we just do that, that's our point of entry. Then we can touch this. We can make direct contact, direct contact with the substance. So I say all the time, this is someone else's words, and I kind of forget who said it. I, I want to say it was Lao Tzu or somebody like that, but a famous sage from long ago. And they said, understanding only goes as far as that which it can understand. I'll say that again. Understanding only goes as far as that which it can understand. And then it stops. And so 
these great questions of life and death, like before I was born, where did I come from? When I die, where do I go? I like that one in particular because that's so real for us. So let's use that one. So when I die, where do I go? A question we all have. So understanding tries to go and understand the answer to this, but it can't, right? It cannot. And so we come to a screeching halt. We come to a wall and we can't access that because we can't understand that. So Sansanim would always say, your eyes can't see your eyes. And it's just plain stupid to try. It would be stupid. So you have to look in the mirror to see a reflection of your eyes. Then you can see the reflection. In the same way, it's stupid to try to understand that which can't be understood, right? So we say only go straight, don't know. Don't know can access that which can't be known. It's really actually very simple and, and it makes a lot of sense. So Zen appears to be esoteric, but it's actually so basic, but it just appears esoteric because it is so simple. So if we use don't know to access that which can't be known, we're in, right? How do we do that? When you're doing something, just do it. Simple. Simple to say, simple to learn, um, hard to do, but we try. So listening to you, you know, I've, I've heard talks similar to that in the sense of, you know, this is not complicated. This is the path. It's very easy. And I'm wondering if there's a moment in your life where, you know, you must have heard that many, many times. And then at one moment you're like, oh, <laughs> that's what they mean when they're saying that. Like, was there a moment in your practice journey when you were hearing Desan's name or any of these other teachers talking about that space beyond knowing? And it still was an intellectual frame until some place along the way where you're like, oh yeah, you started to encounter it or you had your first encounter with it. I still have those moments. I think oh. I think you have these, oh, we hear all the time, sky is blue, tree is green, right? This basic teaching. And so when you first hear that, you walk in the door of a place like this and somebody says, yeah, the sky is blue, the tree is green. And you're like, well, I, yeah, I knew that, right? Big deal. But you'll have these over and over and over again. Ah, now I see, you know, oh, it's like an aha moment. And it just gets more and more rich and deep and true, you know. So I think we have many, I have many of these moments. And I, I think any person who practices, who practices does have that, you know. So it never, that's the, the thing that makes it so exciting is that it's inexhaustible. Right. Like Guji Zen master always raised the one finger. Um, so anytime someone asked him a question, he would raise one finger. And as before he died, you know, he said, my whole life, I raised this one finger and I never exhausted it. You know, so it's like that. I think it's, it's not like it, it's one time that you have this, ah, Guji's finger, ah, it's, mm -hmm. it's just inexhaustible. So you're in this tradition now in the Quantum School of Zen, uh, student of 
Zen Master Sung San. You started, though, in the Tibetan yes. tradition. You In college, you were exposed to Buddhism, and then you went to Nepal. Yep. And I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit about your practice journey, about you know what led you from one stage to the next to, I suppose, where you are now. Yeah, I think, you know, I think uh, we were just talking earlier about how we all have this basic question about when you die, where do you go, mm -hmm. right? And so I had that. And I was walking down the street one day in college, and I was studying English at the time. So I was like reading Shakespeare and all this stuff, which by now I've forgotten all of it. But um, I was thinking to myself, you know, what what is the point of learning all of this? Like this whole planet's not going to be here. Um, who knows when, like what, what's important, but I didn't have any kind of framework for, I didn't know what Buddhism was or, or anything. So I just kind of had these questions. And so like any, well, at that time there was no internet, there was no, all, it wasn't like an everyday household word. So I didn't know what it was. I just knew I had this question and I felt actually rather alone with it because no one else was ever talking about it and no one else ever mentioned it to me. And if I ever brought it up, I didn't even have words for it. Like it was basically, what am I? Or what is this? Uh, or what is important? What matters? And I would like stare off at the sky or stare off at the ocean. And I knew there was something I wanted to touch or get. And, but I didn't even know what it was. And I would eventually shrug it off and say, well, that's, I guess that's inaccessible. I'll just, go have a cappuccino now because like go to a movie because I don't, I don't know what to do with this. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, it's interesting how your dono mind just keeps taking you where you need to be. And so um, I ended up taking a class in Zen and I thought it was going to be, um, I thought it was going to be like tea ceremony or something like that. I really didn't know what it was. And that's when, everything sort of started to open up because mm. when I, there was Suzuki Roshi's book. And when I looked at the back of the book and I saw his face there, I was done. I, I knew I would do that for the rest of my life. And it's been true since then. I think I was like 18 or 19 years old, you know, at the time. But when I saw his face and I think as humans, we all need this. It's sort of like a confirmation that you're not crazy. It's some recognition and confirmation that, that validates your question to say someone else out there feels this way. Someone mm -hmm. else out there is doing this journey. And when I saw his picture, I knew that when I saw his face. And so the rest was just sort of stumbling along. I didn't know the difference between Tibetan or Vipassana or Zen or anything like that. I just thought, well, I got to go find a teacher. And that's what what got me off to Nepal. Because I thought you had to go to the Himalayas. And so... I went. Yeah. You know, <laughs> kind of classic. Um, and then you came back and you you went for this Tibetan studies master's. Yeah, which yeah. Which didn't turn out. Right, perhaps right. Perhaps the way you thought. So I went and met some, the Tibetan lamas in Nepal were just absolutely great. Um, I got to meet um, Sharma Rinpoche was like my first teacher, mm. and Trangu Rinpoche, and I think a lot of these early generation Westerners met those guys, or at least uh, Trangu Rinpoche taught a lot of Westerners. And so then when I came back, I, I thought I wanted to continue with this. 
was very excited about the whole thing. Found a college. I don't even know what catalog I found it in. And I thought it was sort of a college college. And I think it was called the, um, the College of Oriental Studies or the, the University of Oriental Studies. It was in L.A. And my mom said, okay. I said, I want to get a master's in this and keep going with this stuff. And she was like, all right. I, I don't think this is the most practical idea in the world. But, you know, um, she, I think she knew I was a little bit offbeat by then. <laughs> so... I armed myself with my notebooks and my pencils, you know, and and I got on a plane and flew to L.A. with every intention of going to what I thought was something like a regular university, got an apartment, had to take an hour and a half bus ride to get to this every day, took mm. an hour and a half bus ride across Los Angeles. I was totally, totally poor. And walk into basically a Vietnamese Buddhist temple that was... Um, it was Tik Tianan. He was a Vietnamese master. So I go to the registration desk and, you know, to kind of pay my bill and or whatever, get get my enrollment papers and, you know, stuff. And the, this Buddhist nun said, your class is across the street. So I walk into a, a temple, literally a, a Vietnamese temple with cushions on the ground. There were no desks, no classrooms, you know, no chalkboards or anything. And then I was taken into this Tibetan like chamber with the tankas all over the wall and there sitting in like red satin was Geshe Sultram Jeltsin and he was just absolutely wonderful and um and I sat down and I said well here I'm here for for class you know for Tibetan and and there were no other students that came and and uh so we spent about an hour and he was teaching me basic words in Tibetan like dashi delik and you know stuff like that and um, then it was time for Tibetan history. And again, no other students <laughs> showed up. It was just me and him. And it continued like that for the whole day. And he fed me like Tibetan momos, like these dumplings. And he had me sit and write letters to Robert Thurman for him. Cause you know, Robert Thurman was right. um, helping the Tibetans a lot. And I was like doing the stuff in English and and we had these low, they look like those Seiza benches. They had these low benches with the the uh, Tibetan scripts on them. And and then I would take an hour and a half bus ride home. And I got to do that for a year. Uh, I never did get like a master's degree. I realized <laughs> at some point that that wasn't really important, but I yeah. was lucky enough to get just full on, you know, one-on-one -on -one teaching with a really wonderful uh, teacher, Geshe Jeltsin, for that whole year. It was quite remarkable. And again, it's like this this don't know energy is just leading you in, into these places and it, you get the unexpected, but it works out really well. And then, and then that same sort of period you met Jack Cornfield and Joseph Goldstein also, they were in LA or how did that work out? Yes. Yeah, so, so the one thing I struggled with, I loved Geshe Jeltsin. I love the llamas that I met in Nepal. I could see by looking at them and being around them that this practice works. Mm-hmm. And then Geshe started hosting um, some really famous teachers from Tibet. And I started going to retreats in the Tibetan tradition. And one of them was in Joshua Tree, which is a place I went and practiced a lot. And the woman who ran that place was a Vipassana teacher. It was Ruth Dennison, her name was. And she had like this retreat center. Actually, she didn't run the main retreat center. She had an adjacent property there. And... When I went to my first Tibetan retreat, 
it was kind of sad for me because I couldn't do the visualizations. So mm. it was like 10 days and there was a lot of talking and a lot of very complicated imagery that you were supposed to sort of conjure up while you were sitting with like details of hands, you know, multi-armed, you know, deities with rings on specific fingers and stuff like that. And I, I honestly got a headache, like a real bad headache every day. I just couldn't see the, the pictures. And so I didn't know what to do. And I remembered that book, uh, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, with the face on the back that was my first, you know, opening into this, like sort of gateway into this. And I thought, I want something more basic like that because I, I can't, I just simply couldn't do the practice. So one day there with um, Geshe and Gonsar Rinpoche and um, he had some other, oh, I think his name was Kongu Rinpoche, was thin, white bearded, older man. And I was so upset because I knew I had to leave the tradition, mm. but I loved them. Yeah, And so I was sitting there crying, like bawling my eyes out. And I was like, I can't do this, you know? And, and, um, and there was a Coke bottle, the old fashioned like Coke bottle on the side of my chair. And I said, why can't we just see Buddha in the Coke bottle? And I held it up to them with the tears coming down and they all just burst out laughing. And they were <laughs> like, if you want to see Buddha in the Coke bottle, go ahead, no problem, <laughs> you know? And then when they smiled and they laughed, I knew that it was okay if I left. Mm-hmm. I knew that that was going to be more my my everyday mind, kind of like back to what we were talking about. When you're doing something, just do it. Mm -hmm. uh, I needed something really basic because I'm really basic mm -hmm. and uh, a little dense and a little slow sometimes. I just need like the breathe in, breathe out that I can do, you know, or and even that is hard to do. Mm -hmm. So that was my ticket to almost have permission to go. And then I went to a Vipassana retreat with J uh, Joseph Goldstein. I forget, that was in Northern California somewhere. That first mm. retreat, it was 10 days. I thought I was going to kill myself. <laughs> I really did. I had never sat that long because um, the Tibetan retreat was more like studying and getting up and walking around. And um, But he was, Joseph Goldstein is such an amazing teacher. He is absolutely fantastic. And he had a way of describing like how to do the practice. And that Vipassana practice really walks you through, you know, they really, first now you breathe in, breathe out, you count. Now, after a few days of this, now do you hear the birds? You know, you okay, you can now hear the birds. Do you feel your skin? You know, they really walk you through it. And it was, it was fantastic. So then I decided to then become a Vipassana student at that point, because that was like a package that I could connect with. <laughs> you know, Sansanim often would say, it's all about eating the food. So he'd say, in Korea, we use a spoon and chopsticks. In America, you use a fork and a knife. And in India, you use your hand. He's like, it doesn't matter the utensil. What matters is you eat it. And so I think it's so important for people to find the right utensil. Um, and I tell students that all the time. I don't care if they practice our style. I just care that they eat that food because that's where you're really going to benefit. And then you can really go with it, with the practice, if it fits you, you know, rather than trying to struggle with a technique you can't do. And so for some people, I think in the Tibetan tradition, you could they could see that those images and then it worked for them. I just couldn't do it, you know? 
So we all have to find our, we have to do our shopping, our spiritual shopping and our Dharma shopping and look for that keen-eyed teacher mm-hmm. and then go with it once you recognize it, then go with that. So you sat that 10-day retreat and you didn't die. I didn't die. And then you started, then you bumped up and you sat, went and sat a, your first 90-day retreat. Yes, or- yes. So... So mind you, all of this is me still just having a huge passion with this original question, you know, what am I? What Mm. is this? Mm. And um, I don't think just sitting a couple of 10-day retreats is going to get you there, you know? Mm -hmm. And, And But the whole journey, the whole like climbing up to the Himalayas and knocking on the doors looking for llamas and then they weren't home and finding out it was, the teacher was back here and all of that stuff, um... It, it takes a lot of time and, and passion and big question and going for it, you know. So I was so hungry for this. Um, yeah, I couldn't sign up for enough retreats fast enough. So I went to, um, I think we did a lot of little weekend things here and there and, and workshops. And I was working in um, a health food store at the time called One Life, you know, as a cashier. And then I, I worked part-time making cheesecakes, you know, and um, then I scraped together enough money to pay for the 90-day retreat in Barry. I remember the morning leaving for the Barry retreat, I washed my uncle's car for the last like $20 to pay for that retreat. Wow. I, I didn't have quite enough money for it. And so he said, if you come over and wash my car, I'll give you $20. And that was my last 20 bucks. And... Um, Went and sat the 90 days there, and um, it it, it was an amazing experience. There were about eight or ten teachers there that year. So there was Joseph, and there was Jack, and there was someone named Sunanda, and someone named Bhante Sivali, and um, Manindraji was there. Joseph's teacher came, and they just had this, you know, constant sort of parade of all these really interesting teachers giving talks, and... And when the three months was over, I felt like I was just beginning to scrape the surface of this practice. And I wanted to stay so much, and I didn't have any money, you know. <laughs> and some guy who was there, I think I said something to Joseph in, in the interview that I wish I could stay longer. And he, he must have told someone because somebody stepped forward and said, I'm going to pay for her to sit for three more months. Wow. And And... It was an amazing gift. And so I didn't leave when the retreat was over. Yeah. There were four of us that stayed on for three more months. And we continued with the same exact practice. So it was essentially six months retreat there, which was absolutely fantastic. When I met Sansanim, he came to give a talk mm. at the end of the first 90-day retreat. And that's when I met him. So they had him, they had a Zen master come in at the end of this 90-day Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah, and he came in and he was really different from all the other teachers that they, you know, that they had had up there, all of whom were great. Yeah. But I had never seen the Zen type of thing. Right. So these guys had like these flashy, you know, strong eyes and big smiles and it was different. And that was my first experience with with the Zen style, you know. And so you were really drawn to him and you sat another three months. Yep. And then you... Then I knew I was going to go find Desan Sanim again. Um, 
you know, I think it's it's a story I've told before, but he he um, kept saying, I hit you 30 times, I hit you 30 times. And so I got the courage up to raise my hand and I said, he said, what's your question? And I said, well, you keep saying I hit you 30 times. Do you really hit people? Mm. And that's when he said, you come here, you know, <laughs> and I was like, oh my God. So now I quakingly go up there and he says, I can't understand what he's saying because of his accent. Right. And he says, take that, 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 that. I was like, what? And this is in front of everyone. And there's a big room of people, you know, and what he was saying, he hit my hand and he said, take this sound and bring it here. Oh. So after I had him repeat it a couple of times, I heard the words, take this sound and bring it here. And I just, you know, without thinking, gave him this big high five. Yeah. And he was like, wonderful. That's a Zen mind, you know. And that's when I knew like, okay, so you can take all of this meditation and you can actually express it. You know, you could use it in these different settings. And so I knew I was going to go find him after the the next three months. And I did. I went to PZC after that. And you talk a lot about correct situation, correct relationship, correct function, which is essentially a core of his teaching also. And I'm, I'm wondering if you can say a little bit more about that, just given that what you just said about bringing that sound. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think it's a lifetime that that particular teaching is so high class and I can only say how much I respect it because of all the times in my life I have not had a correct situation, correct relationship, <laughs> correct function, right. you know? And, and so I think the main thing I love about those is if one of them is off, suffering appears, Yeah, you know? And so <clears throat> if they're all in line, correct situation, correct relationship, correct function means correct situation is sort of like, what are you doing now? What you and I are sitting here having this, you know, conversation, that's our situation. Correct relationship is sort of like your relationship to the other person. You know, is it your boss? Is it your child? Is it your neighbor? Is it a stranger kind of thing? And then correct function is What's your job in that moment? Mm -hmm. So Desantzneem talked about that a lot. I've never heard another teacher talk about that. And again, this is what brings you back into your everyday life. You know, mm -hmm. sort of those three things with what am I doing now and why? Mm -hmm. And those are your five components that you really need. Correct situation, correct relationship, correct function. What am I doing now and why? Mm. And so he taught about that. And then, you know, you can see if one of them is off, things aren't going to be right, right? If I start um, acting out of order right now in our conversation and, and treating you disrespectfully when you've invited me in here to have this conversation, then something bad, you know, it's going to create conflict. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of like if you can put that into your life, then that's when the teaching comes alive. And that's what I love about him and about this practice is like you can use this stuff in your life because let's face it, we're not sitting 100-day retreats all the time. Right. Where people are bringing us meals and turning on the heat for us and all we have to do is sit there, right? That's not, our life isn't like that. And so what good is this practice if you can't use it in the trenches, you know? There's a great series on tricycle magazines online 
edition. I don't know what they call it. Their website anyway, right? Right. Where you did this uh, four-part series on on koans, on koans. Yeah. And that's something that's, it's not unique to our tradition, but it's something that we really hold up as one of the one of the real teaching tools. And mm-hmm. so I'm wondering if you can say a little bit about, so, you know, when he, he had you hit his hand, that's a, it's a koan. It's a koan. Yeah. And, and also you can sort of look at life always presenting these little koans. And so we do these little training exercises, yeah. if you will, to kind of get us ready, I guess, for correct situation function relationship. Right. But I'm wondering if you can say a little about when you're working with students what is the role of the koan, or sometimes people know it as a koan yes. because of the Japanese, and how you teach people, how you guide people using, just for life, using koans? I, um, I tell students in their first interview, if it's their first interview, I always try to tell them, don't worry about getting the answer in quotation marks, right? Because we're so programmed for that. From the time we're little, you know, we're, we learn if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C, and we all want to get an A on our paper, and we want to be right, and we want to know. And that's why we actually make things up. And I go back to my, my first question I was telling you about, because this is so concrete. When you die, where do you go? That's something we all grapple with. Understanding can't go there, right? So don't know can access that point, right? So I tell students, don't make up something because we're so used, conditioned to want the answer. We make up stuff, don't we? I'm going to heaven. I'm going to hell. I'll be reincarnated or I'm going into the ground. Or, But the point is, is we don't know. And so I try to get students to get really comfortable with this don't know mine and tell them that they can really enjoy koan practice and really learn so much with it if they just bring their don't know energy to the table and not worry about that answer then mm-hmm. it's 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 really amazing to use the koans and i think a famous koan that everyone relates to whether they're you know i've asked little kids this koan and and people who aren't even interested in zen they'll say well what's a koan mm-hmm. and i always tell them the one about namchan's cat mm-hmm. so master namchan you know, was saw all the monks in the courtyard fighting over a cat, the Eastern and the Western Hall. They're like, that's our cat. No, that's our cat. So Namchan picked up the cat and shouted at all these monks, you know, you, if you love this cat so much, give me one word. If you cannot, I'll kill him, right? So it's a famous story and it grabs just about everyone. Everyone's always like, what would I do? How would I save the cat? I would yell stop, you know, or different things like that. And the reason I use that one as an example is, is because it does grab people. But this is where Zen comes into action. You know, so if you practice, these monks are all practicing in a temple. They've given their very lives, cut their hair, you know, renounced all their worldly pleasures. There they are to find their true self. Can, can this practice work when the you-know-what hits the fan? Mm-hmm. Can this practice work in some everyday you know, experience, can it be used? And so Sansanim used to always say this other really cool thing. He'd say, you know, you can practice. You can go sit on a, you know, cave or whatever. 
for years. Um, but if you don't know how to express it, you're like a mute who has had a dream. You understand your dream, but you can't you can't share it with anyone. And so what good is it? Mm-hmm. You know, so this is where the practice takes on its next most important step is correct function, correct situation, correct relationship, correct function. In that moment, what are you doing now and why? There are those five things again in the koan practice. And if those are clear, you can save this cat. Mm -hmm. But what I love to tell people is, you know, if you don't know the answer and you can't save this cat, I want students and I myself want to be more and more comfortable with this don't know mind, more and more happy to not know. And then the don't know accesses that which can't be known. Mm. You know, so this, the koan piece is really important because there's 7 billion people on the planet, you know, and countless beings, countless sentient beings and so much suffering. So this practice is for something. It's not just for sitting around. So how are we going to use it? And how how do these things um, come to fr- full fruition in the world? You know, so that that's why I like koans. And I do think people get hung up on them because they want the answer and they might not want to come in because they don't know the answer or they might think it's too formulaic or prescribed. You have to have a certain suspension of disbelief and you have to be free and you have to come in with this dono mind and then you can have a blast. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sit, Breathe, Bow. I hope you found the conversation with Zen Master Bonyon, Jane Dobish, encouraging and helpful for your practice. You can find out more by visiting cambridgezen.org or her personal website, jane-dobish, that's D-O-B-I-S-Z.com. I'll also post a link to her book, 100 Days of Solitude, Losing Myself and Finding Grace on a Zen Retreat in the show notes. A special thanks to our sponsor, the Quantum Online Sangha. Listeners of this podcast are eligible for a free month of training, which includes live Q&A interviews with Zen teachers, discounts on webinars and online classes, and access to a private community where students can discuss their practice and receive guidance. To access your free month of training, simply visit quantumzenonline.org and click on the free trial membership button on the homepage. And please consider subscribing and leaving a review of this podcast. It helps introduce us to new listeners. I'm your host, Ian White-Marr, and I hope you'll join me again next week.